Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, I'd invite you to go ahead and, and, and turn uh, to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, we have some around uh, on these tables. We would love for you to, to have one. Um, and there'll also be a text up on the screen. Um, so we're starting this series off today called Prodigal. And, and it takes its name from a story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 called the prodigal son. A prodigal is just really a word that just means uh, somebody who's kind of run away. And, and uh, this story and, and the, the, the scene around it has just been really, man, I've been just so preoccupied with it over the last few weeks. And, and uh, I'm really excited to be able to, to share with you, uh, I guess, just the text of the Bible. Like, we are going to just look at what the words of the scriptures are. Uh, and, and I, you know, I think sometimes we forget how challenging the words of the scriptures are. Um, and so I, I just want to let you know, we're just going to be walking through the text and, and I'm going to try to tell you what the words mean. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit of what the implications are, I believe, of the text. So here's, here we go. Uh, chapter 15, Luke's gospel. Gospel, by the way, if you're, if you're kind of new to the church thing, gospel is a, is a word that just means good news. I, so I like to call the gospels. We have four of them. They're good news stories about Jesus. This is Luke's good news story about Jesus. That's the book, chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, says all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. And the Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, uh, this man, being Jesus, this man welcomes sinners and, and eats with them. So when you're studying scripture, one of the things that you, you really need to be careful of is understanding what the context is. What's going on in a scene? I believe that that the Gospels, the stories of Jesus are arranged in particular order for a reason. The writers wanted this story to follow that story. And it's not random. It is, it is intentional to say something about Jesus, to say something about God, to say something about who we are. And so uh, before you just jump into to kind of what the stories are, sometimes you have to understand, listen, who's in this scene? What's going on around Jesus? And what happens in, in the, the, the story of the prodigal son uh, that we'll get to, um, it, it's, it's actually set by this verse and, and, and a couple uh, for that follow it. Uh, so just real quick, who, who is here? Uh, first of all, we're told that tax collectors and sinners are gathering around Jesus to listen to him. Now, uh, tax collectors and, Jesus, and, and sinners, tax collectors in, in first century Jewish culture are traitors. They're traitors. It's just that is the word to use for them. They collect taxes for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the empire that is occupying the Jewish land. They are the overlords. They are the sort of oppressor, the oppressious, uh, the oppressing foot. And so a tax collector is a Jewish person who's collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. Now, not only that, if uh, the way tax collecting worked in the first century and for the Romans is the Romans said, listen, here's the rate of taxes you need to collect. Now, uh, they would say, Mr. Tax Collector person, um, here's the deal. Uh, you don't get any money for this position except what you charge over the basic rate. So 
every tax collector kind of had their own target. You know, maybe the tax rate is 7% or whatever, but I'm going to charge 10 or 12 and that's going to be my profit, my job. So to make it clear, not only are they collecting taxes for the enemy, they are gouging their own people to get paid for the Roman Empire. They're traitors, outsiders, not well liked. At least not any probably better liked than tax collectors are in our culture. Now, sinners, uh, there are multiple words for the concept of sinner in the, in the Bible, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. There are like levels of sinners. There's like real, really bad sinners. And then there's like, okay, people who, well, unlike you guys, got up at 9 a.m. to get to church instead of the 11 a.m. So like, so there's run-of-the-mill sinners that are just kind of like, hey, you're, like, you're, just, you're just a little bit apathetic. You're a little bit lazy. Maybe you didn't go to your growth group this week. You didn't show up to church on time, whatever. And then there's all the way to um, this word in Hebrew that is the word resaim. And resaim means wicked people. It doesn't mean you didn't get up on time. It, didn't mean, it doesn't mean you were too busy you know, getting your coffee to get in here to sing the first worship song. The wicked are the people who are like, no, I actually don't want anything to do with God. I actually am not interested, right? Now, in the context of, 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 uh, of, of this scene and of most of Jesus' activities around eating, uh, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. So resaim, that's, that's Hebrew. But most theologians would say, in the context, they would say, when, when they say sinners, this is who, they mean the resaim. They mean, listen, this guy, Jesus, he's going around eating dinner, eating meals with the, the traitors, the despised traitors who are in league with the Roman Empire and wicked people who don't want anything to do with God. And this makes the Pharisees and the legal experts grumble. So who are the Pharisees and legal experts? Well, this is important too. The legal experts literally are the experts in the Bible. Call them legal experts because there's no difference in Jewish culture between civil law and this. This is their law. So to be an expert in the Bible is to be an expert in legal matters. The Pharisees also experts. How do you keep the law? How do you do what God says? The legal experts and the Pharisees know these scriptures, maybe have you ever been in a growth group with somebody who just knows the scriptures a little too much for your taste? And like you make a comment and they're like, oh, well, that's in the book of Ezra. And it's like this and you're like, oh my gosh, please. That's like the legal experts. They know this thing, chapter and verse. And so they know, listen, the Bible says, Mr. Jesus, man, we're not supposed to be eating with these people. But let me ask you just this. Have you ever known anybody who can quote the Bible top to bottom, but they miss the heart of the whole thing? Ever known anybody like that? And so what's transpiring in these verses and what we're, what we're going to get into over the next few weeks is what Jesus says to these folks who are like, hey, um, understand you're pretty popular, Jesus, but you're you're doing something that it says in the Bible you're not supposed to do. 
And Jesus starts to reply to them. And this is what the essence of his uh, reply starts to be. Now, see, um, before we get to that, you have to understand the concept of, of table, right? So this is this amazing like communion table that some folks in our community built for us. We're going to the communion table today. Um, table means a lot in the Middle East. You know, uh, there, there are aspects of Middle Eastern culture that if, like, if you go and experience them, it is like, it's like what Jesus would have experienced in, in certain values. And so the Middle East has a very particular, and they had a very particular concept of who you could eat with and what the table said. And there's a difference in the Middle East, and there's a difference in Jesus's culture between, mm, let's just say, providing food for somebody, giving food for somebody. There's a difference between that and eating a meal with them at your table. In the Middle East, there's a high value on hospitality. If somebody comes to you and they say, I need a drink of water, love hospitality in the Middle East is you give them a glass of water. You give them the food that they need, but giving them the, the water they need, the food they need, you do not have to sit down at your table with them. You are required to provide. You are not expected to sit down and eat with them. So like in, in, the, in the first century, if you were a wealthy landowner and there were poor people on your street, you would be expected to give them food. It was the right thing to do. You were never expected to invite them into your house to sit down. This is what, this is what the table meant uh, in, in Jesus's context and even some places, like I said, the, uh, the Middle East today. So the table says, listen, uh, we are in fellowship together. Like if we sit down together, we are, we're in relationship somehow. It means uh, actually that, that I accept you and that we're even friends. And so in the first century, this is why the wealthy folks would not necessarily eat with the poor, even though they provide for them. No one would ever say, because uh, the ancient world was pretty stratified in terms of socioeconomics. So the wealthy landowner would never sit down and go, hey, we're the same, you and I. No, they go, no. I'm wealthy, you're not. I provide for you, but we're not the same. And if we sit down at the table together, I'm implying that there's a relationship here that, that there isn't. It also says, listen, uh, we are unified together. We are in this thing together. Uh, you are in the group that I'm in. You belong. And this is where it gets sort of uh, uh, elevated even more because... Um, what the scribes, the legal experts, and the Pharisees all know is that not only is there this table thing, but if you're Jewish, you have dietary restrictions. Anybody, the word kosher, know this, right? So when, you, uh, when God says to his people, listen, don't eat the same as everybody else. You have to, you're going to eat different foods. Like what, what, do, what do Jewish folks not eat? They don't eat pork shellfish. So there are things that God's people, the Pharisees and the scribes, listen, we know in the Bible, it says you're not supposed to eat pork, you're not supposed to eat shellfish, other, other things. Well, it really makes it important who you eat and who you don't eat with, because what if you sit down to a meal and oh my gosh, like there's the ham, bam. 
So listen, uh, I stumbled across this quote this, this uh, week. I love it. It's a rabbi, uh, a, a current day rabbi. And he says, this is the way you sell, you could summarize every Jewish holiday. They tried to get us. God rescued us. Now let's eat. So the table and meals for Jewish people were a way to remind each other and themselves, here's who we are. We eat differently than other people. God did this thing in our lives. And, and because of that, listen, who we can't just sit down with just anybody because they're not us. They're not us. So uh, this week, um, I was thinking a lot about um, our, our table and, and my house. Uh, we have a dining room table. And I actually sat down or with my wife, Shana, and I was just like, hey, do you remember every dining room table we've ever had? We've been married 25 years. And we walked through every single dining room table that we had, you know, and just, oh, we got, you know, this one was gifted to us and this, that, and the other. Um, and we made some decisions, you know, early on that, like, listen, we want to have the biggest table that we can, that our space will accommodate, you know. So uh, I remember the first, like, big table we got, I think it was brand, like, Craigslist was, like, brand new. And uh, we found a, a table that somebody, an Ethan Allen table that, that somebody was selling, uh, and we went and picked it up, and it sat, like it had two leaves in it, so it could seat like 12 people, right? And, and, um, and uh, we would love to have people over. And, and then we had smaller spaces, and now we have a table right now that will sit 10 to 12, just depending on how comfortable uh, you want to get or uncomfortable you want to get. And I don't know what's, what it's like in, in your house, but I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility to say, like, even though we talk about this Middle Eastern thing and, and the table and how big of a deal it was, but I would just ask you this, like, does just anybody get to come to your table in your house? Like, don't we all sort of have some filter and some decision-making process of, like, listen, this is who we'll sit down with in our house. I mean, this is who we feel safe with. This is who we want to invite into this space. It's a, there is a moment of like sort of intimacy, right? Like you're coming into this and you're going to see who we are, right? We all have it. Now, what is going on in this is this is all about who gets to come to the table because Jesus is a rabbi, he's Jewish, and he's sitting down with wicked traitors, and if the Middle Eastern table says, I accept you, we're in unity, we're in relationship, we're, you know, you're a part of this group, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are like, wait a minute, we know the Bible, Jesus. And how can you just be accept? how can you invite these people who are wicked, traitors, and you can say you're in relationship with them? How can you say, Jesus, that they get to sit down and just have a meal with you? Because we would know the Bible, and the Bible says, 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 and Jesus is, this is Jesus' response to it. Um, verse 3. Jesus told them this parable. Now, a parable is a story. It's like a metaphor. It's, like, it's, a, it's, it's designed to make you think about, okay, well, what is this image, and what is this image? And it creates a world that you're supposed to just step into, and it should... Maybe provoke you, it should engage you. And Jesus is like, okay, look, you're sitting down with all these people, Jesus, that aren't supposed to be a part of, of what God's doing. And Jesus is like, let me tell you a story. And here's what I think. 
I think when he says, let me tell you this parable, what he is saying is this. He's saying, let me tell you a story about what God is like. Let me tell you a story about what God is actually like. Because that's what the issue is. Is God a God that can, how can you invite everybody to this table? And he's like, okay, well, let's just talk about it. And then, listen, I'm slow sometimes. Um, and, and I got to tell you, I had never noticed this. But verse 3, Jesus told them, again, he told them this parable. And then he tells them three stories. He tells them three stories. The first two we're going to look at today, and then the prodigal son starts next week. This is all one parable with three parts. And the three parts build on each other, and they, and they, they kind of lay things out, and they start pushing on the, the, the Pharisees and the, the, the legal experts. I just call them the church people. They know the Bible. Jesus, can I just tell you where you're wrong on this point? And Jesus is like, let me tell you a story about how God is like. So then he says, he listens, he starts, okay, suppose someone among you had 100 sheep and lost one of them. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? At which point he would probably pause and remind everybody, listen, this is not to be a manual on shepherding practices. Leaving the 99 sheep might not be the wisest thing for a shepherd to do, but it's a story. What's God like? Well, he would, if one sheep got lost, wouldn't you leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he is what? He is what? Thrilled. And he places it on his shoulders. And when he arrives home, he calls together his neighbors and friends, saying to them, Celebrate with me. Come to the table. Because I found my lost sheep. And in the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. And changing your heart and life, that's, that's the idea of repentance, turning around. It's a biblical word. So what I want you to, what I want you to notice over, over the next few weeks is how Jesus lays out this one parable with how many parts? One parable, three. So here's the first part, okay? There's a sheep. He's one of a hundred. The other element of the story, there's a finder, a searcher, right? You have a sheep, one of a hundred, finder, a searcher. The searcher uh, finds the, the, the lost animal and then he brings it home to what? A celebration and a feast. What's God like? Let me tell you a story. There's a searcher. There's a lost creature. And he goes and gets it and he brings it home and then there's a celebration. Oh, and by the way, when he finds it, he's what? Thrilled. So that's the first story. What is God like? It's kind of like this. So verse eight, he goes on. One parable, second part. Or what woman if she owns 10 silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, what? 
celebrate with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, he repeats it, in the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angel, angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. So, second story. He's building, he's adding, he's, he's, there's a progression here. So this is the way it compares. First story, lost sheep, one of a hundred. Second story, lost coin, one of, you know how mathematically challenged I am, but it appears that the value of one-tenth of something is higher than the value of one one-hundredth of something. So Jesus is saying, here, here's this thing that's building. First we want one out of a hundred. Now there's just one out of 10 that are lost. There's a searcher and a finder. Oh, and isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't seem to be afraid of saying, hmm, that's a woman. She's the searcher. Then there's a discovery of the lost item and what? A celebration. A celebration. And in the first century, when there's a celebration, you're eaten. When there's a celebration, it's done in community and there's a table involved. So those are the elements, uh, and we'll see this play out in the prodigal, but we're not done. Because Jesus ends each of these parts of the story with this saying. He says what? In the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner, wicked person, by this point, the, the Bible folks are, the, yes, we're, amen, we're right there, Jesus. He says, in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents you know, than over the righteous people that have no need to. There's only one problem with that. What does a sheep do to repent? What did the coin do to Repent. Jesus says, in the same way as a story, there'll be more joy over a sinner, a wicked person who changes their heart and their mind. And yet, when you look at the story, the sheep does not change its heart and its mind. You know what the sheep does? The sheep just lets itself be found. He says, in the same way, when this woman loses a coin, there'll be more when, when, over a sinner that changes their heart and mind, that refers, except the coin didn't repent. I don't think a coin can repent. You know what the coin does? It lets itself be found. Jesus is like, let me tell you a story about God. Who gets to come to the table, Jesus? You're eating with wicked people and traitors. And Jesus says, let me tell you about God. He's a searcher and a finder. And he brings the lost back home. And he's thrilled about the finding. And then... And, and then he's like, and he doesn't have to wait for that sheep to repent before he's brought it home. You see, I'm certainly, I'm not a mathematician and I'm certainly not a sheep herder. So I have to rely on just like what I read about, listen, there's people who've studied, they've lived in the Middle East. And, and what I've read this week is that like sheep are herd, sheep are herd animals. And so if a sheep is away from the herd, that's not a comfortable place for the sheep. And so when the one is away from the other 99, at some point that sheep is just going to be cold and frightened and alone and just stuck, waiting for someone to come find it. 
And the only thing the sheep has to do is let itself be found. All the sheep has to do is let itself be found. The shepherd doesn't show up and go, well, sheep, let me tell you what you did wrong to kind of get here. If you were made different, if you made a different decision, sheep, you wouldn't be stuck out here in the cold. What does a shepherd do? Picks the sheep up. The cold, fearful, alone sheep. The coin that's cast off in the corner. And all they have to do is say, I'm not going to run anymore. I'll let myself be found. So, again, Jesus, you're, 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 you can't be sitting down with these people who are wicked and traitors. Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. Yes, there's joy and repentance, but in my story, the God, the God that Jesus is telling a story about, he's like, he just goes and finds them. Now, I want to be really clear here. Am I saying, because I think this is where I get people uh, who, who, who will come and talk to me. Listen, Eric, are you saying anything goes? Are you saying God doesn't want people to change their life? Are you saying Jesus just says there's no such thing as sin? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying don't separate the call to change your life from the heart of the Father who comes looking for you. Never confuse those two things. Never. I will tell you personally, listen, I have opinions. I have viewpoints. I will tell you straight up, there are activities, behaviors, attitudes, things you see, things you've done that will take your life straight over the cliff. There's a lot of bad things out there that you should not do and you should change your life. But never confuse that with the heart of the Father that just says, all you gotta do is stop running. I'll find you. I'll find you. And I'll bring you home. And when I do, by the way, there's going to be a party. Before, you fixed you, before you're fixed. Before you're straightened out. The joy is when the searcher and finder finds what was lost and brings it home. And I think sometimes we just get that the wrong way around. I'm not a psychologist, but I would tell you I've been in enough counseling to know that life change happens in the context of love and acceptance, not condemnation and shouting. Does Jesus want you to change your life? Probably. I know he wants me to change my life. But never confuse that with the heart of the Father. It just says, I'm going to go find you. I'm going to pick you up and bring you home and I'm thrilled. Think about that. God is thrilled to have found you. He's thrilled to have found you. He's thrilled to have found you. He's thrilled to have found me. And he comes home to all his neighbors and says, guess what, guys? It's party time. So, Here's what I would say, and, and again, this is one parable, three stories. These are the first two. He's building to the prodigal story. So this is the way I would sum it. He is, God is a searcher. He is looking for you. He wants to bring you home. He loves to celebrate. Man, God loves to celebrate. And it's like Jesus saying, uh, you want to know how God, you want to know what God is like? He's a celebrate. Now let me tell you why. 
He celebrates because he likes to find people and bring them home before they're fixed, just as you are. Just as you are. I love the idea that the table frames Jesus' ministry. It, it is present in the Gospels, all these stories about Jesus. This is the thing that gets Jesus in trouble over and over and over again. He's eating with sinners. He's eating with wicked people over and over. This is one of the distinctive things about Jesus' ministry. I'm gonna sit down with anybody. Anybody. But at the end of his ministry, the end of his life before he's arrested and tortured and executed, he sits down at a table with his closest followers, the 12, the apostles, people that we all think sit at the front of the Sunday school class. And what I find amazing about this is that he's eating with wicked people and traitors. And oh, and you know, one of the people that he, sit, that he sits down with at a table at the end of his life, a traitor who betrays him to his death. And the scriptures are gloriously silent about whether Judas eats the meal with Jesus or not. I'd like to think that he does. I'd like to think that Jesus has a meal with Judas almost to say, give him one last chance. And also to say, it doesn't matter what you've done. My table is a table of love and acceptance. He also eats with Peter who the next day is like, I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. I want no part of him. I don't want, I, I don't know who this Jesus is. Denies him. And yet Jesus is there breaking bread with him. Here's my table. Here's my table. You want to know, you want to know you what God's like? Anybody comes to the table. Anybody, just come to the table. It's a table of love. He eats with James and John who just before that were like, Jesus, can I be the best disciple? Can you just tell me I want to be the number one disciple? And I actually, I think like their mom is the one who asks them too, which is even worse, right? You got like a stage mom for the disciples. So at the very end of his ministry, Jesus is still just sitting with people who are a mess. And here's what I thought about this week. I think one of the reasons Jesus does this is because Jesus believes in them more than they believe in themselves. I think they're like, no way you want to eat with me, Jesus. And Jesus is like, you have no idea what you're capable of becoming. You have no idea what I want to do with your life. You have no idea, like, if you just let yourself be found and then let me start working in your life, you have no idea where this thing will end. And I think it's the same for us. I think Jesus believes in you more than you believe in you. He believes in your capacity to change more than you do. You think that this is as good as you'll ever get, and Jesus is like, you have no idea. So sit down at my table, be found, and then go on this amazing journey together. You can know this book very, very well, and you can miss the heart of God. And do not hear me to say that there's not brokenness in the world and there's not brokenness in me and there's not brokenness in you. There is, but never confuse that with God saying, but come to the table, be found.